Well, good morning and welcome. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'd like to highlight a few announcements for you. Uh, the flowers on the communion table this morning have been placed in loving memory of Janet Ireland by Larry Ireland and Michelle Moyer. Today is the last day to utilize the table in the foyer to send Christmas cards to folks in the church. Uh, money in lieu of postage may be placed in the little red box and at, after Christmas it will be sent to our missionaries in Chile, the Rubin family. There will be refreshments in the foyer immediately following the church service this morning and all are invited to attend. Youth group, today is your caroling and Christmas party event and that will begin at 3 o'clock. Heart to heart ladies, if you have signed up for the Christmas luncheon at Creekside on Tuesday, the luncheon will begin at 1, we will meet there at 1, unless you would like a ride. And then you can meet at the church and we will leave from here at 12.30. Please note that Wednesday night Bible studies with the Brennans will be in recess until January. Looking ahead, don't forget our Christmas Eve candlelight service next Sunday night beginning at 7 p.m. And the following week, a New Year's Eve party at the Coram Deo Academy, also beginning at 7 p.m. Please read your bulletin for details of the regular weekly meetings. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to gather with brothers and sisters in the Lord to worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. We pray that that would happen individually in each of our hearts and corporately as our local family of God here. We thank you for the message you've blessed Pastor with this morning, Lord God. We pray that you'll speak to us through your precious written word as it points to the living word. And please speak to us through your servant, Pastor. I pray that everything that is done during this hour will bring honor and glory to you and be edifying to us, your people. In Christ's name, amen. Wouldn't it be really great if we were just as excited as the shepherds were when they saw baby Jesus? I think that this song, this Christmas medley, might help us get into that excited spirit. Please stand as we sing. Oh, Lord Jesus. 
seated. praise you that you are the Noel, that you are the King of Israel. And Lord, you're the King of our lives today, Lord, that you are the one who is uh, reigning supreme in each one of our lives. And Lord, it's in your name that we gather before you this morning. We pray that you would be lifted up by what we say and do this morning, that you would be glorified through what we say and do. And Lord, it's in your name that we uh, just bring these requests to you, Lord. We have a lot of different things happening here in our church, Lord. We do, first of all, just pray for uh, comfort and your love to surround the Thomas family, Lord, and the Jardim family with the, uh, the homegoing of Josh, Lord. We do praise you for the services yesterday. Uh, we praise you that, uh, that they were honoring to Josh and that they were promoting of you, Lord, that your gospel was told. And Lord, we do just pray that people would draw close to you during this time. Lord, we pray that you would just be the God of all comfort for the Thomas family. Lord, we do just praise you uh, that Tom and Margaret, the friends of the Demcos, uh, just have completed all their treatments, that they're doing well. We pray that you would just continue to bless them. And Lord, we do uh, just pray for Arlene. Uh, Lord, as she's had uh, the beginning of her chemo treatments this past Wednesday, Lord, we pray for her. She uh, just deals with uh, different side effects and different complications from it. Lord, we pray that you would sustain her, that you would uh, give her endurance, give her perseverance. And Lord, we pray ultimately, Lord, for healing for her. We pray that you would just uh, provide her with healing, that you would provide her with uh, just a fully restored body. Lord, we do just pray uh, for this season, Lord. It's a holiday season, and we do just thank you for it. It's also a very busy season, uh, Lord. And we do just pray for marriages and families during this season, Lord. We pray that they would uh, be pulled together during the season and not pushed apart from each other. Uh, that uh, families would just uh, draw in close to each other and that they would draw in close to you, Lord. We pray that families would look to you, marriages would look to you uh, just this holiday season. We do just pray for all the different uh, holiday activities we have happening here at the church, Lord, with uh, the youth group Christmas caroling today, Lord, the heart-to-heart lunch and the college and career a Christmas party on Tuesday and Olympian Christmas party on uh, Wednesday, Lord, and then uh, we have the candlelight service next week, Lord. We do just pray that you would bless all of these different activities, Lord. Help it to be fun. Help it to be uh, just a great time for people. But, Lord, more than that, we pray that it would be an opportunity uh, for people to reflect really on what this season is all about, that it's all about you coming to earth. And we pray that uh, in our church, Lord, in our different activities, that we would look to you, that we would magnify you this holiday season. Lord, we do continue to pray for Israel, Lord, and we just pray for them to have peace this season, Lord. And uh, we know that this is a season of peace, uh, but Lord, we do just pray that uh, you would provide peace to them, Lord, that you would bring uh, uh, an end to the fighting, Lord, and you'd protect uh, the innocent, you'd protect your people, Israel, in the process. Lord, we do continue to pray for our missionaries of the month. We pray for the Reuben family. Uh, we pray that, uh, that they would just be blessed there in Chile, Lord, that we'd be able to just encourage them uh, just through this uh, offering that we're doing, Lord. And we do just pray that it would just be uh, uplifting to them during this holiday season. Lord, we do just pray as we continue the service that, uh, that it would just be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
Let's continue to worship in song. Please stand, and as we sing, children in first through third are dismissed for Children's Church. For our scripture reading this morning, please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Exodus chapter 34.
Exodus 34, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather before your word now, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we would look to you in our hearts, Lord, that we wouldn't uh, just zone out, that we wouldn't just put things aside, but we would spend this time looking and thinking about you. For all these things in your name, amen. I want to start by talking about some of the greatest trophies of all time. How many people think they could name all three of the trophies here on the PowerPoint? Anybody? No, I don't see anyone. All right. The one on the far left is the Lombardi Trophy. It's given out in the NFL to whoever wins the Super Bowl. The one in the middle is the Stanley Cup, given out uh, in hockey for whoever wins the Stanley Cup. And the one on the left is called the Commissioner's Trophy. It's given out to whoever wins the World Series in baseball. And, you know, there's a lot of other great trophies out there. There's the Heisman Trophy. There's the World Cup Trophy. We have the Olymp Olympics coming around in six months or so, and there's the gold medal. And there's a lot of people who spend their lives or large portions of their lives building themselves towards this trophy. You know, trophies are a mark of fame. They're a mark of glory. They're a mark that says, I accomplished something great in the sports world. And there's a lot of people who spend days, weeks, months, years training in order to get some of these trophies, in order to get this glimpse of glory that comes with the trophy. But you know, the trophy only lasts for them for one year. If you win the trophy, if you win the Lombardi trophy, it only lasts until there's a new Super Bowl winner the following year. It's a glory that fades over time. And what we're going to talk about today is God's glory. And God's glory is not something that fades, and it's not something that can be found in a trophy we're going to take a look at that today in Exodus chapter three and, or 33 and 34. We're continuing our series going deeper with God. We've been walking with God through Exodus, and so far God has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's established a covenant relationship with them. And then as we talked about two weeks ago, Israel immediately turned around and broke that covenant. They sinned against God. And we said last week that there were some uh, problems that came about from 
the sin that Israel did. And Moses went to God and appealed to Him. We said last week that Moses made three appeals to God. The first two were that... Uh, that uh, first, first one was that God's presence would be with Moses. The second one was that God would show Moses His ways. But then I said this week we would be getting to Moses' third request of God. And the third request of God comes here in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. And this is what Moses requests of God. Moses said, please show me your glory. What does Moses ask for here? He says, God, show me your glory. I want to see you in all of your glory. Now, what do we mean when we use the word glory? If you look up glory in in a dictionary, it's going to give you words like honor, recognition, uh, fame, magnificence. The word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, which comes from uh, the Hebrew word that means to be heavy or to have weight. So it's, you ha- we have this phrase in today's language, someone can throw around weight, someone carries weight, that when they enter a room, people notice, people look to them. And that idea is kind of similar, only so much greater with God, that God is someone who carries weight in our lives. But what's interesting here is as we talk about glory, we talk about fame and magnificence and carrying weight, those are all invisible things. They're all things that are kind of invisible attributes. But here, Moses says, I want to see glory. I want to see God's glory. And we learn something very important about God's glory right off the bat, that it's something that's actually so powerful that it's visible. It's something that can be seen. And that's what God's going to do in these upcoming uh, verses is show Moses his glory. There's three things that we're going to look at about God's glory. The first one is that God's glory is far above us. Let's read in Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 18, how God answers Moses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you, by I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, God, or so Moses asked God to see his glory. And how does God respond? God says, listen, I will show you my goodness. I will proclaim my name before you, but I can't show you all of my glory. Because no one can see me and live. God says, I'm so glorious that you can't just see me unfiltered. I am so high above you that You can't just take all of me and observe it all. He says, no one can see my face and live. Now, I do want to point out that some people point to this passage and say there's a contradiction in the Bible because you have this verse, but then you have other verses where people do seem to see God's face and they say there must be some contradiction here. And the answer is, any other time that somebody must have seen God, they must have seen some 
protected version of him, some veiled version. They couldn't be exposed to all of God because God says no one can be exposed to all of him and live. No one can see his face and live. But God is also a good God. He's one, his goodness goes alongside with his glory, and he says, listen, I'm going to show you what I can. I'm going to bring you up to the mountain. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to put my hand over the clefts to protect you. And I'm going to pass by before you. And then you can see my back and not my face. Now, it's important to note that God doesn't have a physical body. God is spirit. So as he uses terms like his hand, his face, and his back, he uses terms that we understand while he is not necessarily exactly using a hand, back, or face, he's using terms that we understand to show his protection for Moses and the fact that he is letting Moses see part of him, but not all of him. So God goes and says, I'm going to show you my glory, but I can't show you all of it because I'm so high above you. So the question that we have to ask this morning is, do we fully realize how glorious God is? I think if we did, then we might live life a little different. We might live life in awe of God, amazed and humbled, and maybe even a little bit scared because we, see, because we realize how glorious God is. We see glimpses of God's glory through creation, through things like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, or even closer to here, things like the Pocono Mountains. And these beautiful displays of God's glory drawn out through creation. And we see it in the stars. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. That God's glory can be seen as we look to the sky above us, to the stars above us. Think about the size of the earth. The earth is a very big planet. But when we look at it in light of even the closest star to us, the sun, it comes out very small. In fact, the sun is 1.3 million times bigger than the planet Earth. You could fit 1.3 million Earths within the sun. And what's amazing is that the sun is only considered an average-sized star in the universe. There are many much bigger stars out there. And there's a lot of stars. Scientists are currently thinking that just within the Milky Way galaxy alone, there's somewhere around 100 billion stars. And they're saying there may be trillions of galaxies out there. The current thought is that there's somewhere around one septillion stars. Now that is uh, one with 24 zeros put after it. And that's how many stars scientists think are in the universe. Now, that's also just a guess because scientists don't actually know because most of these stars are not even able to be seen by our best telescopes at this point in time. Think about that. We, with all our technology, can't even see everything that's out there. And we can't even number the stars that we have. It is literally uncountable. And God says, I made that. I'm the creator. I'm the one who holds the stars in my hand. That's how glorious God is. He says, these stars are here to proclaim God's glory. And if we just are amazed on how powerful the stars are, we should be even more amazed by how great God is. So that's the first thing about God's glory is that it's so far above us that we can't even understand it. The second thing about God's glory is actually that it's found in His 
name. Let's read chapter 34, starting in verse 1. This is uh, what Mike read earlier. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. So God says to Moses, it's time for you to come up on the mountain. It's time for me to show you my glory. He does some preparatory things. He says, I want you to make two stone tablets because we're going to reestablish the covenant. God says, I want you to make sure there's no one on the mountain, no herds, no cattle on the mountain. I want you to come up. So Moses comes up on the mountain and he gets to see God's glory. But what's interesting is that what does he experience when he's up on the mountain? He doesn't see some magnificent act that God does. God doesn't perform something cool for him. He doesn't even describe at all here what he sees in this description. What do we get? We get a name. We get God declaring who he is to Moses. Now this name is very important. Even in the Old Testament, this these verses, God declaring his name, is actually repeated multiple times. Here's a quick snapshot of other verses within the Bible that refer back and quote these passages. Numbers, Second Chronicles, Psalms, Joel, Jonah, Nahum, they all go back to this description of God. Because this is when God declares who he is. Now, if you were to try to get to know somebody You know, you met a new person, you want to get to know them. What's one of the first questions you ask? What's your name? Who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. And this is an opportunity, and we only get a few opportunities like this throughout the Bible, where God says, let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you who I am. Let me introduce my name to you. And that's what God is doing here. He's giving Moses this glimpse of who he is, and we see God's glory through it. So how does God introduce himself? We're going to take a, take a second to walk through this. The first thing that he says is, the Lord, the Lord. He makes this declaration. He says, I am the Lord. That word, the Lord, is the word Yahweh. This is the word that God uses to refer to himself throughout the Old Testament. He says, I am Yahweh. The, word, the, phrase, or the, the name Yahweh comes from Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and God says, I am who I am. That's where we get this name Yahweh from. And God repeats it. He draws emphasis to it. He says it twice. He says, this is me. I am Yahweh. And then he continues on. He says, I am, wow, you really can't see that. Let's do that. I am a God merciful and gracious. God immediately draws attention 
to his mercy and grace. That's the very first thing God draws attention to. In fact, even for Moses to be here on the mountain is an act of God's mercy and God's grace. It's not something that he deserved. Grace is when we don't get something that we deserved, or mercy is when we don't get something that we deserve. Grace is when we get something that we do not deserve. But they're really two sides of the same coin. Both of them are acts of what we deserve is not what we receive. And it's critical that God is merciful and gracious. Because when we think about it, God is a perfect God, and we are imperfect people. And for God at all to interact with us has to require grace and mercy. It has to require us not getting what we deserve, because what we deserve is no relationship with God whatsoever. What we deserve is to be stuck in our sins. But for God to interact with us, for God to interact with Moses, is an act of God's grace and God's mercy. God goes on from here and says, I am slow to anger. It's interesting because just a couple weeks ago, we talked about God's anger and how God gets angry with sin. And God's anger and his wrath are poured out against sin. But it's important for us to realize that God does not pour out that anger quickly. He's not someone who gets angry when worked up really fast. He's slow to anger. He builds his anger slow. In fact, if you think about Israel and all the sins that Israel is going to commit from here until the time that they're exiled, it's about 900 years of Israel's sin. And God's slow to that anger. He doesn't just pour out his anger. He doesn't just judge Israel right away. He is slow to that. Why would God be slow to anger? And the answer is to leave room for repentance. To leave room for people to turn away from their sin. Just like in the story of Jonah with Nineveh, how God was going to pour out his anger on them, but when they repented and turned from him, God relented. God waits for people to turn to him. He's not quick to pour out his anger. He is slow because he wants to leave room for repentance. And he leaves that room for us as well. Room for us to turn away from our sins and turn back to him. We often think, when we look around the world today that we see evil and we say, why doesn't God just strike them down? Why doesn't God just deal with this? Why doesn't God just get rid of it? And the answer is because God is slow to anger. God's giving room for repentance, even for the evil that is done in our world today. This goes right along with it. His next thing, he says, abounding in steadfast love, uh, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. God says he is abounding in love. Have you ever uh, had, a had a thing with your spouse or with your kids where, you know, you, somebody said, I love you, and the other person says, I love you more, and then you say, I love you most, and then they say, well, I love you more than the most, and, you know, you get into this competition about who loves whom more, but with God, there is no competition. It says he is abounding in love. He is overflowing in love for us. And it's not just some temporary love. It's not just some feeling. He says it's steadfast love. It's love built on something, that, uh, built on God's faithfulness, built on something consistent. It's steadfast for us. When Paul is describing God's love in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, this is what he says. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says, may you understand how great God's love is for you, the width of it, the depth of it, the breadth of it. May you understand it all, but it's love that surpasses knowledge. That's the description that we get of God's love for us. It's love that surpasses knowledge. Now that love is actually coupled with the word faithfulness. That God's steadfast love is coupled with his idea of faithfulness. Or in some other translations, you might see the word truth in your translation. And what that means is God is faithful to what he says. What he says is true because he holds fast to it. He is faithful to what he says. And God is someone who is faithful to each one of us. God then goes on, he says, I am someone who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the outpouring of God's love. This is kind of the total of some of the other things that we saw, that God is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love. And the result is he is a God who forgives. He's gracious and merciful for us. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice that this does not say that he overlooks sin or that he negates sin. It says that he forgives sin. And this is what's ultimately found in Jesus Christ. When he dies on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sin. So that if we repent, if we turn to him, we can have forgiveness of our sins, of our iniquities, and of, of our transgressions, that God forgives us of our sin. But then God doesn't just leave it there. He ends with, he holds the guilt. He said, I will not clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquities of the father on the children and the children's children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. God says, listen, I'm not going to just let the guilty go. I am a just God. And even though my anger is slow, there will be a time where justice will be carried out. I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm not going to just scrub away people who are guilty of their sin. There's a lot of people who don't like this aspect about God. They say, that this sounds like an angry God. We don't like that. But this is actually an outpouring of God's love. Think about it this way. If he were to clear the guilty, then think about the evil person in the world today who goes around harming people, harming these innocent victims. Think about God's love for the victims if God were to say, eh, I'm going to act like that's not a big deal. I'm not going to hold the guilty accountable. I'm not going to hold the evil person accountable. How would you say that God would love those victims? For God to truly love the victims, God has to hold the guilty accountable. And that's what he does. He's a just God. He says, I'm not going to clear the guilty. He says, I'm going to carry out my justice. And this is the description that we get of God's name. This is how God chooses to identify himself. Now, it's important that we don't, you know, take one aspect of this and run with it and say this is all God is. It's important for us to know that all of these things make up who God is and so much more, by the way. There's, uh, there's so much more than just what's said in these verses. But we have to be careful that we don't put God in a box and say God is just one of these things or uh, some of these things. We have to say God is all of these things. These are all a description of who God is. When God gets a chance to define himself, this is how he defines himself. And this is also where God gets the glory, is people recognize this about God. When people recognize that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, 
forgiving iniquity. When people realize this, God gets glorified. God gets lifted up in people's eyes and people's minds and people's thoughts. That God receives glory through his name. And then there's one, way, one more way that God uh, has his glory. It says that God's glory is found in his covenant. You know, Moses coming up on the mountain actually was serving two purposes. The once was displaying God's glory through his name, but the other was to reestablish this covenant with Israel. God had built this covenant with Israel. It was displayed through the tablets that were originally written, and then Israel broke that covenant right off the bat, and what does Moses do? He takes the tablets and destroys them, and here God's saying, we're going to start over. I want you to bring up some new tablets. We're going to reestablish this covenant, this relationship with the people of Israel. Let's read what it says in verses 9 and 10. It says, and he said, referring to Moses, Moses said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So Moses again makes another appeal to God. He says, God, please don't leave us. We need you with us. We need your presence here with us. Go with us going forward and forgive us. Because we are stiff-necked people. And we need your forgiveness. Moses again goes back to his role as the mediator. Asking God for forgiveness for Israel. And that's where God responds to. And he says, yes, I'm going to reestablish my covenant with the people. We're going to re-get into this covenant relationship. But what's interesting is how God talks about it here in verse 10. What does he say is going to happen through his covenant? He says, I'm going to do marvelous things. He says, people are going to be in all of what I do, the awesome things that I do. Everyone's going to know the glory of my name through this covenant. People are going to stand back in awe of what it is. And that's what Israel gets to see time and time again, that God's glory displayed through his relationship with them. As we read the pages of the Old Testament, we get to stand in awe of who God is, his glory displayed through how he takes care of Israel time and time again through miracles, through miraculous events, through prophets coming along, God is quick to work with His people and display His glory with them. And you know, God also wants to display His glory with us today. And God's relationship with each one of us, God is looking to display His glory. He's not just looking to make us feel good. God is looking to display His glory and who He is. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, it says, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's talking about making us, and he says, Why did I make you guys? For my glory. Each one of us have been created by God for God's glory. That is why we are here. And Paul picks up this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The, what we do on a regular basis is 
to point people to God to display God's glory. Now, my fun story with this verse, when I was in uh, fifth grade, I, I went to a Christian school in fifth grade, and my teacher in fifth grade would make the class every day before we were allowed to go to lunch, we would all have to stand up and say this verse. And at the time, I really thought it was boring. I didn't like it at all. But this verse got stuck in my mind. And as I grew up, as I started asking, why am I here? What, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? I start coming back to this verse. That whatever I eat or drink, whatever I do, I'm doing it for God's glory. That needs to be why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing. We're supposed to be displaying God's glory. Now, if we're going to be all about displaying God's glory, it has to start with us getting rid of our own glory. See, I think the greatest thing, the greatest obstacle to God's glory in our lives is us looking for our own glory. It's why people do what they do. It's why we look for trophies, as I talked about at the beginning of the message, why people spend years trying to get a trophy because they're looking for their own glory. It's what drives business moguls. It's what drives singers. It's what drives artists. It's what drives so many people is this desire for our own glory. And I think each one of us has something within us that wants our own glory. We want people to look at us. We want to be lifted up ourselves. But if we're going to make our lives about God's glory, we have to start by getting rid of that. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, you will never glory in God until first of all God has killed you're glorifying in yourself. We're never going to give glory to God. We're never going to point people to God until first of all we have killed our desire to glorify ourselves. So is that where we're at today? Are we people who are looking to glorify God or ourselves? Are we looking for our own recognition, our own fame, our own sense of importance? Or are we looking to glorify God for who He is? So this is what we see when we see God's glory. We say God's glory is far above us. We can't even face God head on. We see that God's glory is displayed through his name and how he declares himself. We see that God's glory is displayed in his covenant relationship that he does. But what is our response to God's glory? And I want to return your attention to one of the verses that I really haven't talked about too much, and that's chapter 34, verse 8. This is what it says. Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. What is the appropriate response that we have to God's glory? Worship. Looking to Him. Bowing our face to the ground and worshipping God for all He is. Whenever you get glimpses of heaven, what do you see? You see angels worshipping God. Worship is the actual response that people have and angels have when they see God. When they get a glimpse of who God is, worship is the only acceptable response. Is that our response this morning? When we stand in awe of who God is and all of His glory, how do we respond to that? Do we just see it and move on with our lives? Do we just say, oh, that's cool and move on? I talked earlier about how God's glory can be displayed in creation, can be displayed at the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. And when I was a kid, I got a chance to go to the Niagara Falls. Now, I was a little kid at the time, and as a little kid, I was a bit of an antsy kid. I liked to be, um, be moving at all times. I was always running around. So my parents took us, 
me and my sister to the Niagara Falls, and we stood there, and we stood in glory of the falls, just taking it all in. And you want to know how I reacted? Oh, that's cool. Are we going to go now? Can we uh, head out to get something to eat? And then I started, you know, running in circles right there because I was bored. And the glory of the falls had absolutely no impact on me because I was this little kid. Now, I've always wanted to go back so that I could actually take it all in for real this time. But how often is that our response to God? We say, oh, that's cool. Now I'm going to go do my own thing. I've got my own life to worry about. I've got my own things that are concerning me. And we don't stop and worship God. Here's your opportunity this morning to stop and to worship God. To be in all of who He is. All of His glory. All of His majesty. All of His fame. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I'd encourage you to ask the simple question that Moses asked. Please show me your glory. Show me just a glimpse of your glory. And if you pray that to God, if you ask God for that, I'm sure he'll do it. He loves to display his glory. So let's take in God's glory this morning. And let's respond and worship and praise to him. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we praise you for all that you are. We praise you that you are the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we praise you that you are the God who loves each one of us. Lord, we praise you that you are the great God, the God who is far above us, so high above every single one of us. You're the God who created the stars. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you this morning, that we would respond with worship to you this morning. Lord, there is no other fitting response. I pray that you would receive all the honor and glory within our lives. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. God's glory results in worship. We're going to sing a song called Adore. And the word adore is a word that means worship. So please stand and let's worship and adore the Lord.
want to remind you all that out in the foyer there will be refreshments after the service. So we encourage you to just take time, a fellowship with each other, spend some time together talking and just having a snack with each other. But we want to just return back to what we were just saying. Let's come and adore God. Lord, we pray that this holiday season that we would adore you, that we would glorify you, that we would put ourselves on the side, that we would put our own desire for glory on the side. We would glorify you. We would adore you this season. Pray these things in your name. Amen.